You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So there I was, Sunday morning, got out of bed, picked up my phone. And, you know, looked at Twitter as one does when one is passing the time when you get up on Sunday morning. And there was just out of the blue this tweet from this person that I've never heard of named uh, Catholic Lisa. And it said, I wonder if fake Dan Savage, which is my handle on Twitter, has ever Googled gay bowel syndrome. Gay bowel syndrome, for those of you who aren't uh, up on bullshit quack diagnoses from the 70s was this kind of homophobic uh, lumping together of all gay male anal issues into this one sort of syndrome category. It's been totally debunked. It doesn't exist. The right wing talks about it endlessly. Basically, if a gay dude got hemorrhoids, it was gay bowel syndrome. If a gay dude had polyps, oh my god, it was gay bowel syndrome. If a gay dude had IBS, it was gay bowel syndrome because what gay men do with their bowels. If a straight person had hemorrhoids or polyps or IBS, it was just a straight person with hemorrhoids or polyps or IBS. It wasn't a straight person with straight bowel syndrome or gay bowel syndrome. It was just a butt thing. But gay men weren't allowed to have a butt thing because, oh, you know what we do with our butts. And I tweeted back because I'm easily baited. This person I've never heard of who said, I wonder if fake Dan Savage has ever Googled gay bowel syndrome. I tweeted back, I wonder about Catholics who spend their Sunday mornings tweeting at gay men about their asses. Shouldn't you be at mass? And then I cc'd uh, the Pope. I turned her into the Pope. Turned in Catholic Lisa to the Pope. And this turned into a Twitter war, which – can happen because she tweeted back at me and I tweeted back at her and then I tweeted at all my gay male followers that this person was very concerned about the conditions of our anuses and we should let her know how our butts are doing. And this just went on and on and I was at the gym as gay men, you know, mass. We go to church too. We go to the gym on Sunday mornings uh, and I was annoying my husband and because uh, I kept responding to this woman. Terry got very annoyed. So he jumped in and said, if you don't stop tweeting at Dan, I'm going to start making a donation to Planned Parenthood every time you tweet at Dan because she's crazy pro-life Catholic Lisa. All over her profile, Terry looked around, pro-life tweets, and she's a big fan of, surprise, Rick Santorum. And she tweeted. So Terry made a $50 donation to Planned Parenthood and then tweeted that at her. And then she tweeted at me again and Terry made another $50 donation and sent her the receipt. Uh, a photograph of it on Twitter. And then she tweeted at me again and Terry made another $50 donation to Planned Parenthood, $150. And then she claimed that we were bullying her by making these donations when all we, all she had to do to make it stop was stop tweeting at us. Stop talking to me. Go away or I'm going to give $50 to Planned Parenthood. And then Terry, because Terry's a fucking genius – sent out a note to all of his followers saying everybody should start donating to Planned Parenthood uh, in honor of this woman in her name. And then I sent that out and we raised three grand more for Planned Parenthood just on a Sunday morning at the gym, tweeting away. And this may seem like just pure assholery. Like, oh, here's this woman. She's against abortion and she's upset that we are killing babies by making these donations, which of course we are not. Uh, we are supporting women's health, mammograms, access to contraception and yes, necessary and legal and a constitutionally protected right to abortion services. That too but all that other stuff as well and primarily all that other stuff. And the, the irony is if you are opposed to abortion, you should be the biggest and loudest supporter of Planned Parenthood. 
the Guttmacher Institute, which does amazing work uh, on sex and sexuality and reproductive health, brought out a study last week. Abortion rate has fallen to its lowest levels since 1973. It's almost to pre-Roe v. Wade levels. Roe v. Wade, of course, legalized abortion across the country. It was already legalized in some states at that time, but it legalized it everywhere. And the abortion rate in 1973 was was 16.3. That's 16.3 abortions per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44. It was 16.3. At its height in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was president, it was 29.3. Now it is 16.9. And the Guttmacher Institute unpacked how this happened, how the abortion rate was brought back down to nearly pre-row levels, access to contraception. Period. The end. Some right-wingers are claiming that it was all these crazy anti-abortion restrictions that were passed after 2011 like, oh, if you want an abortion, we're going to have to violate you with a transvaginal ultrasound or you're going to have to wait four days while we kill your dog. All these crazy fucking right-wing Republican efforts to block women from exercising their constitutionally protected right to an abortion. Right-wingers said, oh, it must be that. And, oh, no, 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 no because this study ended – Pre-2011. This study doesn't measure the impact of all of that bullshit. This entire decline, access to contraception, that is 90 plus percent of what Planned Parenthood does. Women's health, reproductive health, mammograms, cervical screenings, contraception, access to contraception, education about contraception. No one has done more to bring the abortion rate down in this country than Planned Parenthood. So if you oppose abortion, you should be thankful that Terry and I were encouraging people to throw money at Planned Parenthood. Anyway, that was Sunday. The next day, uh, Catholic Lisa was online claiming that I had bullied her by giving money to Planned Parenthood. Uh, if you would like to join me in supporting Planned Parenthood in the name of access to contraception, in the name of bringing the abortion rate down even lower by preventing unplanned pregnancies in advance, please join me in bullying Lisa, Catholic Lisa, by going to PlannedParenthood.org and clicking on the donate button and throwing them some money. They need our support. Even if it's a tiny amount of money, there are two ways that you can support Planned Parenthood. You can give them shitloads of money and that is welcome. But even if you just give them five bucks, they're able to point to the total numbers of supporters they have in the American public. Even if you just donate five bucks, you become another donator, another supporter that they can point to when they go and argue their case and argue women's case and men's case. Contraception is for men too. Straight guys, contraception's your issue too. When they go to Congress, they can, they can point to those numbers, the totals raised but also the total number of people supporting and donating. Join me, won't you, in bullying Catholic Lisa who was just innocently bullying me about my ass when then I had to turn around and bully her back. Which is really their issue, right? A lot of these right-wingers, they think we should be able to punch you in the fucking face. We should be able to barge into your brain on Sunday morning when you woke up and talk to you about your gay asshole. But if you get in our faces, if you talk back, oh, you're bullying us. You're oppressing us. Yeah, that's the way it used to work. It used to work the way that you want it to work again, which is you can punch me in the face and I can't say shit about it. But you know what? Don't work that way no more, Catholic Lisa. You don't want me raising money for Planned Parenthood in your name? Stay off my ass and get your ass to mass on a Sunday morning. I want to say your calls after this, but I quickly want to say it's Valentine's Day on Friday. 
Take my advice. Fuck first. Donate to Planned Parenthood first. Then fuck. Then go out to dinner with your partner. Don't do the dumb thing. Go out to dinner. Drink a lot of wine. Eat a chocolate cake. Go home and then not fucking be sad on Saturday morning and send me an email about what that means that you're not fucking on Valentine's Day after dinner. You want to fuck on Valentine's Day? Fuck first. Then go to dinner. Now your calls. Hi, Dan. I am a 43-year-old single mom of four, and I live in the Bible Belt. I have fallen in love with a wonderful man who happens to teach two of my children. He's also from a different country and is a different color than I am. We don't date openly because um, he is a teacher to my children, and we don't think that's appropriate. But the kids do know the two he teaches say that they hate me and that I'm gross because I am seeing their teacher. My ex-husband, whose opinion doesn't really matter to me, um, says that I'm a slut and a whore because I fucked a black guy and that he's going to be embarrassed uh, when his friends find out. And he's also threatened to take the kids. The kids asked me to stop, and I agreed to uh, initially because I didn't want to lose them, but it didn't last very long, and the kids found out I was seeing them again and were very upset. This man is about to end his time teaching my children, and we want to spend our lives together. I know I don't want my children to um, dictate who I can date and who I can love, but I am concerned about our community reaction. There will be friends of ours, family friends we've known forever that will not talk to us again because of this. Help me. I'm going to assume that your ex-husband and his entire family and maybe even your kids and everyone in your community are the folks behind the Boycott Coke movement that broke out on Twitter after Coca-Cola aired its big Super Bowl ad and it showed Americans of every race, color, creed, sexual orientation, singing America the Beautiful in all sorts of different languages. And it was really beautiful and it really said something that Coke thinks there's more money to be made. Coca-Cola, iconic American corporation, more money to be made acknowledging the diversity and the beauty and the diversity of the American population than pandering to the hateful fucking loud ass bigots who comprise a huge chunk of the base of the Republican Party these days. So conservatives, hello. Racist conservatives, hello. Coke thinks you guys are on the losing side. Coke. Coke is on the side of immigrants. Coke is on the side of the Dream Act. Coke is on the side of the queers in the United States. Not so much in Russia. Cheers to Sochi. Check out that hashtag on Twitter. Anyway, pivoting to your problem, here's what I think you should do. I think you should get a little candle. And I think you should light it and set it in front of a picture of Dwight D. Eisenhower and thank him for building the interstate highway system and get in a car and get on the interstate highway system with your love, the man you want to spend the rest of your life with, and get the fuck out of Dodge. Move. Leave. Your kids can come with you or they can go live with your hateful ex-husband, but you are not welded to the floor in that shitty, stupid fucking town. The economy is rebounding. A lot of school districts in a lot of saner places that laid off scores of teachers during the recession are hiring. This man that you're in love with, if he's a teacher and he's a qualified one and he's a good one, can get a job elsewhere. You can get a job elsewhere, hopefully, as the economy rebounds. You don't have to stay there. So go. Leave. 
The course of true love never did run smooth, someone once said about a couple of teenagers. And it can certainly be said about you and this man that you love. Your call makes me so angry because we have to pretend here in post-racial America that this still isn't an issue, that this still isn't a problem. But clearly it is. They fired somebody from MSNBC last week because this person – no one knows who this person is yet but this person has been fired – tweeted out that conservatives might have a problem with this new Cheerios commercial that brought back the interracial family with the interracial children and for that by implying that all conservatives were racists – this dude was – or this woman who tweeted that was fired. But if you look at the data, you look at the research, it's a terrific post at Daily Coast that unpacks this. The post is titled, If You Oppose Interracial Marriage, You're Likely a Conservative. To recap the end of the post, not every conservative Republican opposes interracial marriage. But if you oppose interracial marriage, odds are you are a conservative Republican. I would bet – that if we looked at the voting returns, if we looked at who supported Romney versus Obama in the community in which you live, we would find overwhelming if not 100 percent support for Mitt Romney. Well, guess what? You're in love with a black dude. Get the fuck out of town. Leave that shitty place. There are better places. And that's your only, only option. You have to face down the hatred and the bigotry or you have to go somewhere else by which I mean to say somewhere Better. That doesn't mean that other places are going to be bigotry-free. There really is no bigotry-free place. But there are bigotry-light places in this country where you can go live with the black man that you are in love with. My only hesitation, of course, giving you this advice is your kids. I worry for them. I worry for them being left behind in this community with your shitty ex-husband, their father. And I worry – about what's informed their reaction to this relationship. Do they truly disapprove or are they just terrified of the reaction that they're going to get from their peers when it gets out that their mother is in love with this teacher and is living with and intends to marry this teacher, this black man? Are they little racist shitbags themselves having steeped in this culture for so long or are they terrified of the bullying that they will face? when this relationship goes public. If it's the latter, even if it's the former, maybe you should take your fucking kids with you. Get them out of Dodge too. Get them someplace better too. But if they're old enough to stay, to make their own decisions, to make their own choices and they would rather stay with hateful dad and hateful shithole land, also known as the Bible Belt, let them stay. Let them make their choice. Congrats on finding new love, and good luck on finding a new community. Hey, Dan. This is a 21-year-old straight man from Las Vegas. Um, I was just wondering a question. I had to think about this for a while. I didn't think it was a big deal. But after hearing a lot of your podcasts, it got me thinking, is it really rare to have multiple orgasms as a guy? Because I do. And, uh, like, I tried to Google it, but every time I Google it, I see, like, um, people talk about having multiple orgasms, but it's like having uncoming orgasms, and then the final one you come. Uh, I come every time. I stay hard afterwards. Um, I do not get tired. I do not get, you know, that tiggly feeling that people say that they get after coming. I don't get any of that. It just stays hard. I come over and over and over. It makes you last a while, so I'm glad of that. But I was like, after hearing a lot of your calls where you say, you know, it's typical for a guy to get off after coming. Or anything like that, I was like, is this really such a weird thing, or am I just thinking it is? Um, so I wanted to call you since you know 
it all and see if that's true or not. Um, is it just because I'm young? I mean, I'm 21. Um, is it something I'm going to lose when I get older? Or is it just like a gift of God? When most men come, their body releases this hormone called prolactin that makes them disinterested in sex, makes sex uncomfortable, deflates their erections. And when people are young, that uh, that time between being able to get hard and ejaculate – when men are young, that time between being able to get hard and ejaculate and having another orgasm is 15, 20 minutes. If somebody is in their teens, it stretches into like half hours. People get older. Uh, in 70s and 80s, when people are really old, it can be a day or more, the refractory period it's called, that time between – Orgasm A and your next orgasm, orgasm B. But some men, it's very rare, but they are out there. And I have encountered one in my life of sleeping with men. I've met one guy who had this superpower. He had no refractory period. That's you. You have no refractory period. Your body, for some reason, either doesn't release the prolactin hormone that suppresses sexual interest and desire in men after orgasm, or it doesn't pick up the signal. And you can come and you can come and you can come and you can come. And it is Amazing. It is particularly amazing to be on the receiving end of it, but it is amazing. Uh, and it is your superpower. That's how you have to regard it. This is your superpower. You are different from other men. You are an X-man. You are a mutant. Uh, but what an awesome mutation to have. You don't have knives that burst out of your bones and cause you great pain. Uh, you have the ability to blow load after load after load after load. So if whatever you're studying, whatever you want to be when you grow up doesn't work out, you have a career ahead of you in porn. Hey, Dan. I'm a tax savvy at risk youth. I'm a 25-year-old gay lady living in a big liberal West Coast city. Recently, my girlfriend of two and a half years and I were talking about our future. She mentioned that for her, having kids is something that's really important to her and that she wants to have kids before she's 30. But when I imagine my future, I just don't see having kids as being a part of it. After we put this out there, the conversation about our future is just sort of petered out. And that is this nagging voice in my head that says having kids just isn't something that you can compromise on. What do you think, Dan? Is having kids or not a deal breaker or is it something that we can figure out? So have you and your girlfriend broken up yet? Uh, no. Okay, you didn't say this one detail that's really crucial here. How old is your girlfriend? She says she wants a baby by the uh, time she's 30, but how old is she now? 25. 25. Okay, so you're both 25. I don't know what to tell you. Like babies, there's not a half a baby compromise. You either have a baby or you don't have a baby, right? I'm surprised. Totally. I'm surprised, I know. I'm surprised that you waited 2.5 years to have this conversation about your future together. There's no other talk of our future together and what that might look like until now. Um, nothing, you know, in any kind of serious manner. More just like, hey, you know, it, like when we see other kids around, like, oh, I would never do that, or I would absolutely want to parent that way, but never yeah. like. This is really important to me. Okay, so she's laid down this marker. Being with me means you will be a parent at some point. That's correct. And you laid down the counter marker, which is I don't ever want to be a parent. Yeah, no. I have, like, no desire at all. What about the desire to be the sort of not full-time parent? Um, yeah, like, I, I actually really like kids. Mm-hmm. And I could definitely, you know, being a part of a kid's life would be great. I have nieces and nephews. I love spending time with them. Mm-hmm. But just, you know, everyone who I know who has kids, having a kid, I mean, it's like a full-time job in addition to everything else you do. It absolutely is. You know, or like even more than a full-time job, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, you have to be willing to do things that you didn't think you would ever do in your life, like catch vomit in your cupped hands. Your kid starts to throw up and your cupped hands go to the mouth and you catch vomit and you run into the toilet. 
And you're like, wow, that was not something <laughs> I ever thought I would do. And here I am doing you're it. You're like, that's... Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's and, really important for people not to have kids if they don't want to have kids. I'm not like one of those parents who's going to mow mow you into having a baby or try to talk you into being a parent because it's really totally. in the best interest of children that people who do not want children do not have children. All those <laughs> studies that show that gay and lesbian parents, gay couples and lesbian couples who parented by choice, not they were in some relationship and they had a baby with a straight person and broke up and then – uh, but people, gay couples who adopted, lesbian couples who parented together, that our children, uh, 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 almost all measures are happier, healthier, more successful. And it's not because gay parents are magic. It's because gay parents don't have children by accident ever. You can't get drunk yeah. and adopt one night, right? But a lot of straight people <laughs> get drunk and become parents one night. And most of them rise to the challenge and are terrific parents, my own included, but a certain subset don't, right? And that skews the parenting studies for the straight people, all these people who didn't want to have kids. So I support you. If you don't want to have kids and you're a dyke, you don't want to have kids and you're straight, don't fucking have kids. Yeah, that's a big factor. I want it to be fair to the kid, you know. If, mm-hmm. you know, if I ever were to parent, I'd want to be a great parent, but I just don't, I don't feel like my heart's in it. I don't feel like I could be. Okay. Great parent. Okay, so when are you breaking up with your girlfriend? Oh, you know, <laughs> I guess I guess it's something I'll have to do soon. I mean, because it's not fair to drag it out. Yeah, it's not fair to drag it out. Have you told her this? Have you told her I am not? It's over if that's the condition. That's a price of admission I am not willing to pay. No, but I have been really clear that that's not something I'm willing to do. Uh, well, you need to put and that. Basically, you need to put that on the table. There's only one bug I'm going to put in your ear, though, from Parentland. Okay. Which is what you want at 25 isn't always what you want at 30 or 35. Yeah. Right, and, and, and what. Yeah, where you think your life is going and what you think you want to be doing. And there is a lot of people out there, unintentional parents, people who went along with their partner because their par- partner wanted to parent and they were ambivalent or even opposed, who wind up you know, coming around and loving it and are really happy that somebody dragged them into Parentlandia. So I, I just want to put that bug in your ear. But if you are absolutely positively certain this is not something you could ever do, you owe it to yourself to end this relationship because you now know that you're incompatible on this fundamental level. But you owe it to her. She said by 30. If she wants to do this with a partner, she's got a couple of years, three, four years to find that other person and make a baby. Totally. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so, thanks, Dan. You're welcome. This is not a price of admission you're willing to pay, right? You look at this, you're, you're thinking about no. your girlfriend and thinking, if it's you and a baby or not you, I pick not you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just don't, yeah, I just, that sounds awful. Okay. I mean, pops, everyone who has, who has kids, that's a great thing to do, but that's not a choice that I want to make. Okay, I support you in that choice. I really, really, and truly do. I'm not one of those parents who wants to leverage everybody else into being parents. I think it's terrible when people have children they don't want or can't take care of. So I support you in that choice, but you need to do the right thing and pull the plug on this relationship then. That's the loving right. thing to do. Don't drag it out. Don't say, I'm going to think about it, and maybe I'll come around in five years, and then she's 30, and you're like, nope, still don't want to do it. Yeah, no, I definitely can't do that. That's definitely the wrong choice. Okay. Okay. Whew. Is there something to think about on this Monday? <laughs> I'm going to call you next Monday and make sure you're single. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. Okay, bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a Midwestern lesbian in a long-term relationship with two boys and a house full of animals. Um, our story is basically this. Partner and I were engaged in some rimming, rimming uh, while our boys 
um, ages six and nine, were taking turns with their nightly showers. This uh, usually leaves us about 40 minutes of uninterrupted personal time. So we uh, locked the door and decided to get down. Then in the middle of this act, our youngest son bust in into our bedroom door that we assumed was locked and said, uh, I saw you kissing mama's butt with our older son sauntering in to the room behind him. Um, at that point, we were honestly at a loss of words and in awkward positions, literally. Uh, we, we told them to please leave our bedroom and that mamas can kiss wherever they want. So we really had no idea what to tactfully say. So, Dan, can you give uh, some advice on the sensitive topics of same-sex education for children? And I'm pretty sure this applies to all gay couples with kids. Mamas can kiss wherever they want. I think that's perfect. You don't need my help. That was exactly the right thing to say. Uh, Terry and I had a similar incident once a million years ago, and I leapt off Terry at about a 1,000 miles an hour when we realized the door was flying open. And the first thing out of my mouth was, I was just saying good morning to daddy, dot, 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 which then became a euphemism uh, around our place for all sorts of things. Um, Listen, uh, the the thing that you're going to have to do with your kids is not overplay this. Uh, This is traumatizing to you as a parent. Your kid – uh, probably will not remember this or not remember it for long. The bigger a deal and the bigger drama you make out of it, the more you're sort of cementing it in their heads. The important thing, the conversation as a same-sex parent that you want to have with your kids eventually when you start talking to them in an age-appropriate way about sex is that sex is primarily in the lives of almost all people, gay and straight, for pleasure. And people find many different routes to giving pleasure to their partners during sex. Uh, when we have the conversation with our kids about sex, we usually stick to reproduction, that sex is for making babies, zygotes, spermatozoa, fallopian tubes, um, and there you are. Where do babies come from? And we leave out pleasure and it's really important to emphasize that it's mostly about pleasure, that it's about intimacy and love and connection and it should be done in an intimate and loving and connected way. You don't have to also add them and that can be true whether it's a one-night stand or a fuck buddy situation or a friends with benefits or a lifelong partner. You can still be intimate and connected and compassionate and kind, whatever the sex you're having and with whoever you are having it with looks like, feels like uh, or however long that relationship is going to last. So that encompasses that sex is primarily pleasure. There are lots of routes that people take to giving each other pleasure. Uh, that – lassos in mommy eating mommy's ass without you having to say, and sometimes mommy eats mommy's ass. You can leave that out. Your kids will, of their own accord, discover rimming. Uh, It's part of porn. It's part of everything else. It's out there. People know about it. One day, maybe, it will occur to them when they see some rimming in porn, they will flash on this memory that mommy rimmed mommy once and they saw it. Uh, I doubt it though because think back to when you were six. What do you remember? Nothing. Most people remember very little or nothing from when they were six. Your six-year-old will not remember this for long if you refrain from making a huge deal out of it. So don't make a huge deal out of it. <laughs> Get a better lock for your door and stick with mamas can kiss wherever they want if any questions are raised. I'm a 24-year-old from the greater Boston area. I'm calling because I have a friend who recently posted on her um, Facebook page um, a long-winded diatribe about um, how she's a practicing Catholic who sins herself a lot and 
Um, she just wanted to make sure that all of her gay, bisexual, LGBTQA friends were aware that she still loves them, even though they're going uh, straight to hell. And I find these sort of banal platitudes tiresome, to say the least. And I was just wondering the best way to combat this sort of ignorance or whatever it is. She's a very sweet girl. I love her to death. But at the same time, I just, I'm just trying to figure out how to confront this kind of thing while being nice. And I just really want to figure out the best way to talk to people that believe this in this way in a productive manner. I don't want to post something long on her Facebook, calling her out and being an asshole to her um, because she is a sweet girl and her heart's usually in the, in the right place. But I just find this reasoning to be flawed and uneducated and all those other great things. And I really love your show and you're a very erudite person that can synthesize this sort of um, argument. So, yeah, uh, that's about it. So thank you very much. You know her, I don't. Maybe she's a sweet girl. I don't think she's a sweet girl. I think she's a hateful piece of shit. What she's doing, though, is she's outsourcing her hate. She's putting it on God. I like you fine. I think you're nice. You're my friend. But you know what? God... God is going to cast you into hell for all eternity and torture you. You're going to suffer in misery for all eternity because God hates you so much. I like you fine. God hates you so much though. And what a shame that is that you are so despicable and unlovable and and, and sinful in the eyes of God. Let's go get nachos. Like how is that loving? How is that sweet? How is that anything but assholery? And projecting. God is not her fucking sock puppet. God does, She doesn't speak for God. How the fuck does she know? There are people who've picked apart the Bible who – there are different interpretations of all the clobber passages in the Bible that supposedly slam and condemn gay people. And she clings to those. Why? Why? Why does she cling to those when everything else in the Bible that is a clobber passage that targets adulterers – and fornicators and everybody else, she doesn't feel the need to go online and say, oh, hey, all my divorced friends and, you know, my Aunt Sue, I know you're divorced and I just wanted to say, you know, I really love you, but you're going to hell for all fucking eternity because Jesus said so in the Bible. Jesus, Jesus himself from his own mouth condemns divorce. And where's that post on Facebook? It's not there because your not-so-sweet friend doesn't hate divorced people the way she hates LGBT people. So she's not looking to the Bible for justification to explain away or rationalize or justify her hatred of divorced people because she doesn't hate divorced people. She hates her LGBT friends on a basic and dehumanizing level, just fucking hates them and doesn't have the courage of her own convictions just to hate them outright. She puts it on God. She outsources her hate. I think you should get in her face. I think you should say, hey, on Facebook, hey, you have Jewish friends. Would you like here now to explain to your Jewish friends why they're going to hell? Because if she is a practicing Catholic, she believes for the same reasons her LGBT friends are going to hell that her Jewish friends are going to hell. Maybe she should unpack that at great length. She wouldn't. It wouldn't even occur to her. Even though that is probably something that she as some sort of conservative wacko Catholic believes – because she probably doesn't believe it. It's really actually kind of hard to find Catholics these days who will just say Jews are going to hell. Easy to find Catholics who will say gays are going to hell. 
And even Catholics who do believe that Jews are going to hell, they don't feel this need to harp on about it on Facebook and elsewhere. They keep it to their fucking selves either because it saddens them greatly if they honestly and sincerely believe it or on some level they don't believe it or they hope it's not true. They hope God isn't that evil. They hope that God isn't the bigger Nazi than Adolf Hitler because to think that is kind of insulting. To think that of God diminishes God, drags God if he exists down to the level of just hateful, spiteful human in-group infighting, out-group fighting and he's supposed to be bigger than all that, right? So your friend, your sweet friend who had to get online and in front of all of her LGBT friends say this shit needs to be confronted and you should yank God out from under her because this isn't about God. This is about her and you can prove to her that it's about her. By asking her where the posts are about the divorced folks in her lives, letting them know that she loves them but they're going to hell and the Jews and everybody else. And if those posts aren't forthcoming, then she does indeed hate her gay and lesbian friends and bi and trans friends. And she needs to own it and have the courage of her own hateful, spiteful, bigoted little bitch-ass convictions. And if she can't own it, I wouldn't be her friend. And I don't understand why you would and I don't understand why any of her supposed LGBT friends would either. Hi, Dan. The woman I was in a relationship with um, for the past year recently told me that we had to break it off because she was too busy, but the reason being that she's sort of overcommitted with law school. And normally, I would say that that was a pretext for the fact that she was just annoyed with me and uh, didn't want to see me anymore. But with this person, she is so genuinely overcommitted that she, she may actually have meant it when she said it and um, it's also possible that she may just feel that love was sort of making her weak and that you know she wanted to sort of get out before I, I softened her up too much and then she couldn't um, be uh, vicious enough or I, I guess a efficient enough lawyer. The, the, the trouble is that I would really like to try and win her back. I really liked her and really still like her, but obviously the, the last thing that a very busy person needs is somebody attempting to win their heart back and possibly creating the type of disruptive um, emotional stuff that would, you know, what, what she was worried about in the first place. So anyway, my, my question is, how far, if at all, can I, I can I morally go in taking steps to try and uh, persuade her that this is not what uh, what she wants to do? Obviously, I, I don't want to be a, a stalker or to be a dis, be a disruption, but um, yeah, I really like. Her. Joining me by phone, Hannah Rosen. She is a writer for The Atlantic and Slate and the author of The End of Men, where she writes in great detail about women like this guy's – or girls, college students like this guy's ex. So, uh, Hannah, thanks for jumping on the phone with us. 
Oh, yeah. I love this guy's question. I'm really happy to talk about it. Okay, let's set aside, just for the sake of argument, uh, the possibility that she dumped him because he's boring or stupid or annoying and she just pointed to her workload in law school as an excuse. And said, oh, I, have to I was going to ask you I, I was going to ask you that because I thought, you know, or, you know, women have a way of expressing themselves, but he seems so kind of tender and sincere and self-aware that I figured we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Okay, so she only dumped him because of the... Is that a thing that women do now? They don't want to have boys boyfriends because of the workload at college because they're taking over the world? Yeah, surprisingly. I wrote about it in my hookup chapter. There were these researchers who spent a long time in this college dorm because everyone thinks, you know, the hookup culture is made for men and, you know, men are just trying to get what they want out of it and the women are always just trying to get married. And what these guys discovered is these women, these young women would talk about their relationships in terms of college credits. Like, I really can't be in a relationship right now because that's like a four credit class and it would take up so much time. And like, they really were pretty utilitarian about them, which is kind of heartbreaking, right? Like, you feel like it's the death of young love. But the women, they wanted to have sex, but not relationships. But the, the sexist assumption of the researchers going in was men only want sex, women only want commitment, and women trade sex for commitment. But what they found was the opposite. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not just that they just want sex. Like, they also want intimacy. They want something. They just don't want to be tied down. They just don't want commitment. So, as you hear from this caller, it sounds like these guys like each other, right? Like, if we take what he say for granted, they like each other. They have a pretty good relationship. It lasts for a reasonably long time. It's just that she's suddenly feeling tied down and her work is taking priority. And so what's your advice to him? How can he make himself a more attractive partner potentially to a woman in this kind of uh, position, which you, you wrote about this in your book? How does he market himself to her if he wants to convince her to take him back? Okay, so if we reverse the genders, like think about this as a rom-com. If we reverse the genders, the answer would be that the guy is too much of a workaholic and the girl is going to teach him what the priorities are in life, right? Right. So, but I think that's too insulting at this point in feminist history. It's like a little bit too new. So the specter of women giving up their careers or making their careers second priority to follow a man is just a little too new and raw. So there's no way we can really tell him to... To, to sort of send her that signal. Right. I he just can't, don't think that's going to work. There's no male yeah. equivalent of the manic pixie dream girl, which is that trope in rom-coms. Oh, that, my God. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was talking to my husband about that. Is there a manic pixie dream boy? Like, is there a guy who can just kind of flutter in and wave his magic wand and make her realize that – make make her realize that life is about love and fun and traipsing through the park. I don't think there is yet. Like there might be in many years when this stereotype is a little bit less raw, but it seems like right now he, she would just look at him blankly and hate him forever. Like but, that's not the right way to go. So, so you're, what you're saying though there is that your husband isn't a manny, manic pixie dream boy, <laughs> right? You say this doesn't exist yet. So you're saying basically your husband doesn't fulfill this role for you in your own marriage? No, he does not wave the magic wand. And I actually asked some women friends of mine, I was like, what if the guy came to you and sort of let you know that you were being too much of a workaholic and life was about other things? They just looked at me like, that would so that would be awful. Like, I want to work, so leave me alone. Like, right now I'm just working, you know? It's not like women don't understand the value of love or want it at other moments, but if someone came and told them they were working too hard at that moment, even if it was so obviously true, they would super not be receptive to that message. So, so I don't think that's the right way to go. But is, it, is the way to go then to, for him to go to her? and say, look, I know what you fear is if we're boyfriend and girlfriend, if this becomes more of a like ongoing established relationship, that that comes bundled up with obligations and time commitments. And you know what? We can be boyfriend, girlfriend, and I will not make those kinds of demands on you. And we don't have to buy into those 
default obligations and time commitments. That Those are opt-in and I know you're really busy. So we'll see each other not that much but we can still be together. I think he has to do better because he said that's kind of what he's been doing. He said, you know, I've been trying not to get in her way. I've been trying to respect her busyness. Here's my two ideas and you tell me what you think. I think he has two options here. So option one is, do you watch Parks and Rec? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Leslie and Ben, you know, they were going to get in trouble. If Leslie had a relationship with Ben because they were both working in government, they would get in big trouble. And when Leslie was running for office, Ben made himself extremely helpful. He was effectively like the wife. So I think that's option one, to somehow find a way to be very helpful to her. You know, and I, I don't know how hokey to be with this. Like, should he cook for her? Somehow send the signal that he can be helpful to her ambitions. Not just that he's not going to get in the way of them, but that he's going to be actively supportive of her ambitions in totally the way that women have often been actively supportive of men's ambitions. What so do you think? I think that's great. So when you're having a study group, I will be there with my mouth shut and <laughs> I will make food for you and all of the other kids from your law school that you're studying with. Yeah, like, probably all women because women are taking over according to right. the end of men. Right. Totally. Like with my apron and bake the cook. I mean, I don't know how far he wants to go. This He can't turn her off, right? He doesn't want to actually be like, I'm the wife in the apron. But somehow, if he can think about it, you know, we don't know this woman. We don't know what would be helpful to her. But if he can think of ways that he can be like signal in very concrete ways that he is totally supportive of her ambition, like really be mindful. Like I'm not going to schedule things when I know you have exams coming up. I'm going to only schedule things like the day after exams. We're going to go to a cool concert. And and so he's actually thinking actively about ways to make her life easier. That's my first idea. My second idea is that he has to play into her sense of herself as an ambitious, cool person at the center of things in some other way that's not, you know, just thinking about her study group, but making himself awesome and exciting in some other way. I'm thinking of The Devil Wears Prada, where the woman who's working in the Vogue office is with this boyfriend who's just kind of sitting around and not doing very much, and then he kind of becomes a chef. Like he signals with his own ambition that he's somebody you want to ally yourself with. I can't believe I'm talking about women like they're so crass, but you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that he, he's, he's like someone you, he's someone who's going to be a, an awesome partner in life in some other way. Like not in necessarily the wifely way, but in a way like you, this guy and you are going to go places together in some cool way. This seems like somehow mutually contradictory advice or am I misreading it? Can he be both doing his own thing and you know, ambitious for his own career and his own position and what he's going to do in his life and also in his interactions with her be supporting her ambitions and communicating to her that when I'm around, it's to help you get where you're going, not to like make you stop that effort and pay attention to me. Can he do you both? are right, Dan. You are totally right. But I'm just giving the boy options. Like, I don't know which one is going to work <laughs> better for him. I just don't know. Like, one or another one of those. I'm just putting myself in this young woman's place, and I'm thinking either of those – because she is going to want to have a relationship, right? Like, we all understand that, you know, I don't know if now or a year from – and we all like connection, not because she's a girl, but, like, at some point, she's not, you know, her entire life is not going to be like, how do I get through this study group and get an A in my law school class? Like, we all understand that at some point she is going to want connection, love. I don't know about family, but she's going to want to, I assume, you know, if she's been in a relationship for a year, she, she values connection and love. And so she's going to want that again. So how can he sort of stay on the sidelines? He can do it one way or the other way. It sort of depends on what feels more natural for him. I'm thinking A, just given his voice and what we know about him so far, but I'm not sure about it, that. Maybe he's got some grand plans to be a chef. I don't know. Or maybe you know? he, maybe his grand plan is to be a future house husband of America. That's also that an option too. now for more and more men. A lot of high-powered yes. women want 
a husband. They want that connection, but they also need the home front taken care of. And if they're guys who are suited to that and that appeals to them, there should be a place for them to go and do it. Like every Catherine Hagel movie. Now, he here's option three, which I haven't mentioned. He can get her pregnant. I'm just kidding. That's oh, my just God. <laughs> That's what happens in Knocked Up. She's like, damn it, this loser, I have to marry him because I have his baby, you know? So anyway, no, I didn't say that. That's, I'm just kidding. But, you know, there are other ways. There are, there, are cinematic, there are cinematic lessons for him out there is all I'm saying. It's what happens in the movie. Like, that's how he gets her, you know, that's how, like how you got to bring the woman. That's every Judd Apatow movie is, you know, how do I bring this uppity woman down? Like, how do I get this woman who thinks that her entire life is about being a TV newscaster or some other high-powered lady? Like, how do I make her understand? You know, how, do, how does my kind of brodom rub off on her that she understands life is about other things? I, I don't think they quite, like, work out successfully. Like, the harmony doesn't really happen in those movies, but it is the message out there that they're sending. Everything I know about heterosexual relationships, I learned talking to Hannah Rosen about <laughs> movies made by Joe Adetow. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone, Hannah. That was awesome. Oh, it was really fun. Anytime. Hello, Dan Savage. Uh, I am a 30-year-old straight male in a long-term relationship with a woman, and we are planning to be married, and we are now in a uh, long distance relationship because of a new job and uh, I've moved to another state she's planning to come and meet me um, and after two months there are obviously lots of emotions and lots of new issues to deal with and one that's surprising me is jealousy I've never been a jealous person but uh, I'm finding that I'm having insecurities and wondering who she's talking to and what she's doing. The nature of where I am is that I live by myself in the middle of nowhere and she's home in our social circle and, and I trust her totally. But there's the question. Uh, she was here on a recent visit and got a text message from a guy who has been a part of her life. They have history together. They care about her, each other. And he, is crazy about her. And I don't know if she sees it or not and just ignores it or what. I don't think that she has real feelings for him anyways. He invited her to her house over text message. The phone was laying there when it went off. I saw the text and read it and decided to snoop a little bit. And I'm not a snoop. I'm not an untrusting person, but found a little history going back over the last couple of weeks. They've been talking a little bit and and he has obviously been really trying to get her attention and to get her alone. And, and you know, to my surprise, to my happiness, she is blowing it off and obviously not continuing it and, and furthering it, which puts me at ease, but I still have to process. And I decided not to bring it up with her, maybe because I didn't want her to know I was snooping, maybe because... It's not time yet. I don't want her to feel threatened. And I just want to enjoy our time together. But one thing that I would like to do is to contact this guy. I mean, we have, we know each other. It's, you know, it's a decent relationship. I don't want to call and threaten and say, you motherfucker, back away from what's mine. But mostly just to let him know that I understand what's going on, that I'm aware of it. And to let him know that it would hurt me, you know, that it hurts my feelings, that it, that I find it to be a little rude, um, what he's doing, and just ask him politely to back off. And I wonder if that's an appropriate thing to do. I don't know. I totally think that you should call this guy and 
blow up at him, which is probably what you would end up doing. You say you don't want to call him and scream at him to stay away from what's yours, but that's, of course, what you do want to do, and you'll wind up saying that. You may start with, you know, it makes me feel bad, and I thought we were friends. It'll end up with, stay away from what's mine, or be perceived that way. Um, I totally think you should do that, though. Call him, scream at him, blow up at him, tell him to stay away from what's yours. You should totally do that if what you want to do is make yourself less attractive in your girlfriend's eyes and this dude more attractive in her eyes. That's exactly what you should do if you want to screw your relationship up. Listen, you saw that text and I have said that sometimes a little snooping is understandable and permissible and everybody does it but everybody feels that they have to say, oh, it's terrible. It's wrong. Um, It happens. What did you find when you snooped? You found this guy who is not – a good friend to you, making a play for your girlfriend and your girlfriend repeatedly, emphatically rejecting him in girl code. Women are socialized not to say no to men. So a lot of women who are being pursued by guys that they wish would leave them alone or they have no interest in, they don't just come out and say no. They deflect. It's this kind of passive knocking aside of the interest or or knocking it down. No, I can't. Oh, that night's bad for me. Or sometime, yeah, maybe we will. And it's never, never, ever happening. And what you found out was it's not happening. She is handling this dude. She is taking care of it. She is rejecting him. He will sooner or later get the message that he's beating his head against a brick wall and is getting nowhere. So rest easy. It's being handled. She's handling it. If you go around her to him and say something and it gets back to her, it's going to make you look crazy and insecure which everyone is to a certain extent, make you look insecure and controlling and possessive and unnecessarily so. And stirring up drama for her back home. You're not there. She's, as you said, embedded in your old social circle. All these people know each other. They're all friends. She may be handling this in her way to avoid drama and conflict and a blow up that you know screws up the social dynamics in your group, Right. But if you jump in from far away and stomp on this guy and then everybody's going to find out about it and she finds out about it and then everybody's going to think he's a jerk and it's going to blow up this little social scene and she's handling it in this way because maybe she doesn't want to deal with that drama and the fallout. So let her handle it and be confident because you snooped that she is handling it and everything's fine. You're getting what you want. She is as trustworthy as you believed her to be. The only person who has the power now to screw this up is you. Don't screw it up. Take yes for an answer. Yes, your girlfriend loves you. Yes, she's trustworthy. Yes, she is not interested in this guy. So you win. Let it go. The only way you lose is by opening your mouth. Keep your mouth shut. We're going to take a break from the calls for just a minute. There's a regular segment we do here on the show called What You Got where we invite – Sex researchers or scientists or sociologists who are hard at work at universities all over the country studying people, our sexualities, our mating habits. Uh, We invite them onto the show to talk about the fruits of their labors, their latest research. Joining us this week, Professor Jennifer Glass, Department of Sociology and Population Research Center at the University of Texas, Austin, to talk about her new research. Joining us by phone, Professor Jennifer Glass, Department of Sociology and Population Research Center of the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. Professor Glass, what do you got? 
Well, um, I just completed a study that's looking at the relationship between the concentration of conservative Protestants in a county and their divorce rate, and it turns out that it's quite positive and quite strong. So the evangelical Christians, conservative Protestants, fundamentalist Christians, that's what that means, right? Conservative Protestants, evangelical yes. Protestants. Yes. So fundamentalist exactly. Christians, h- higher divorce rates in these counties than, than godless heathens in other counties? Yes, and this is why it's so surprising. These are religious groups that sacralize marriage and think that it should be permanent. They disapprove of divorce. And so the paradox is why in this very strongly religious culture do we see higher divorce rates instead of lower divorce rates. And, and what, what's your theory? Well, my personal theory is that it goes along with a lot of other beliefs that they have about restricting sexuality to marriage and abstinence before marriage. If you have this sense that um, all sexual activity needs to be restricted to heterosexual marriage, it's an impetus to marry young. And so what a lot of these young people do is they marry early, they stop their education, they have children right away because many of them also believe that contraception is wrong or that certain contraceptives are abortifacents. So they have children very quickly after they marry. They have strong beliefs about gender segregation, that wives should belong in a home and uh, primarily assume the roles of homemakers and mothers. And so you have young, relatively uneducated men trying to earn enough money to care for an entire family that's rapidly expanding, Um, mothers who don't have a lot of education as well, so they can't really help out, and the kids are very young. And as we all know, that's kind of a recipe for divorce. And all that we already know that those things correlate strongly for divorce. Early marriage, right, correlates very strongly for divorce, marrying young. Yes, and having a low level of education, um, having financial difficulties early in the relationship, all of those things are very strongly correlated with divorce. There was one other thing that your study found, uh, because I took a sneak peek ahead of time, that I think shocked a lot of people, was it wasn't just young evangelical conservative Protestants in these areas who were marrying young and divorcing young, for whom you know it was a risk. It was also people who weren't evangelical Protestants? Yes. If you simply lived in an area that was dominated by conservative Protestants, your divorce rate was likely to be elevated as well. And we think this comes from two sources. One, we think it comes from the fact that you're more likely to marry someone who's an evangelical Protestant. So we're looking at individual risk. We don't have a lot of information about their partners. And these kinds of mixed-faith marriages where one person is very conservative, um, has uh, a very idealistic notion of marriage, and the other one does not, have particularly high rates of divorce. But we also think it might have something to do with the community and cultural institutions that are created in counties that have high concentrations of conservative Christians. For example, there might not be birth control clinics around. There might not be lots of community colleges or higher education options for young people. Um, There may be a push for abstinence education in the schools and a high rate of unintended pregnancy, which generally leads to uh, a very quick marriage in conservative communities. So we think that everybody's everybody's kind of influenced by those kinds of things. These are the same people, evangelical conservative Protestants, who yammer on and on and on about the threat that gay people marrying supposedly presents to the traditional institution of marriage and to heterosexual marriage and the traditional family. And what your study points to is there is a threat to marriage and there is a, a threat that pushes people towards divorce, but it is not gay people. 
<laughs> yes, I would say that early family formation is definitely um, a strong disincentive to a healthy marriage and a strong push towards divorce. And um, yes, it is true that part of conservative Christian theology is to restrict marriage to heterosexuals and to um, well, wait, 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 no, 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 not just restrict marriage to heterosexuals, but point an accusatory finger at gay people and say you are threatening, you are imperiling by existing this institution that we are fucking up just fine all by ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly true. Now, what's the, the, your report got a lot of uh, play. There were big stories written about it. What's been the reaction, particularly from conservative evangelical Protestants? Um, I think that the reaction has been muted from that community because I, I think that there have been some scholars already writing about this, that it is a problem to have people marrying young, and it's really a problem to have people cutting their education short. I think the evangelical response to this has been to try and open up their own parallel institutions of higher education that are you know, biblically based. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if that's going to be a successful strategy or not, because one of the things that education does is it broadens your worldview, it opens your mind to critical thinking, and it helps you make better decisions about the kind of person that you should marry um, and the kinds of financial investments that you might want, want to make when you're just starting out. So um, I, I would say that you know, the jury's kind of out about whether that's going to ever change or not. I have gotten a lot of positive feedback from other religious leaders from other denominations, um, and a lot of them think that, in fact, we do have to stop this focus on sex crimes <laughs> and see that as just one of many, many, many aspects of life that we have to treat with reverence and uh, think about in terms of our own moral decision-making. But I certainly would agree with that. I mean, we don't want to fetishize these kinds of crimes and forget about all the other religious dictates that are probably much more important than who you sleep with. And we should probably stop telling young people that you have to abstain from sex until marriage because it incentivizes early marriage, which we know to be reckless marriage, that we should encourage people to be themselves to have relationships to explore, to really know themselves before they pick somebody. But if you say to somebody, you cannot say to a teenager, you can never have sex until you get married or you're a terrible person, they will marry at 19 because they're dying to have sex at 19. And those marriages... It's also worse than that because some of these uh, denominations also forbid masturbation and, you know, virtually any form of sexual contact, even kissing or holding hands. Oh, my God. So, Yeah. (laughs) a bit much to live up to. The last question we always ask everybody on what you got is, what's the takeaway here? So is the takeaway, don't be a crazy fundamentalist conservative evangelical Protestant and don't live near them? Is that the takeaway? Uh, the, the takeaway that I certainly would want listeners to take away would be to think carefully about the kinds of public policies that are put in place when local communities are allowed to favor one particular religious view of marriage and family life. Professor Jennifer Glass, Department of Sociology and Population Research Center of the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, Where can people find your study? Where can they find it online if they want to read it? Um, It's in the American Journal of Sociology. I don't believe it's been published yet, but as soon as it is, they'll be able to find it online from their website. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Professor Glass. We appreciate it. Thank you for letting me on the air. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescued. I am 21, asexual female, calling from the Midwest. And I was just scrolling through my blog, and I saw a post involving incest. It said, any relationship in which the people involved are above age and of consent and happy are okay. Incest and polygamy are just as right and healthy as queer relationships as long as everybody is in consent and happy. Fuck off. I had a lot of trouble reading this. Like, I feel like comparing any sort of 
gay or queer sex to sex with your brother or your dad or your cousin is just kind of weird. I don't know. Maybe I'm being closed-minded. But I was kind of wondering what your opinion was on it. Because I just kind of want to know what I should be thinking, I guess. I don't know. The incest question gets thrown at those of us who argue that people have a right to make their own choices and that consent and consenting adults is the metric by which we should measure whether a sex act or a relationship is okie-dokie smoking. And people will say, well, what about consensual incest? What about a brother and sister who are in love and want to be together? And what about that? And, you know, what about that? Most incest laws do not criminalize consensual adult incest. Incest laws criminalize uh, basically adult family members having sex with their children and rightly so. But we don't throw people into prison for having sex, consensual sex with other adults, even other adults who are closely related to them. Now, you tick off you know, having sex with your sister, having sex with your father. What about cousins? Cousins – it's not illegal. People, people who are first cousins can legally marry in 25 states and those marriages will be recognized in all other states. So when you add cousin to your list of Ooh, icky, unthinkable incest practices, that's kind of inaccurate and cousin marriage is not something people typically have a problem with. So cousin sex obviously wouldn't be something people would have a problem with. But let's talk about the incest taboo for a second as opposed to legality or illegality, You know what we prosecute, what we don't prosecute. Um, those of us who support uh, people should be able to make their own choices, consent matters, consenting adults uh, is the metric. What about the, the incest taboo and should we be working against it and fighting it? And I would say no. I am a big supporter of the incest taboo and I always will be. Um, for this reason, if a couple of brothers want to be together – Right? There's a very famous porn star, a couple of brothers. Uh, Dear Prudence over at Slate handled famously a letter from two adult men who happened to be brothers who were in love and had a relationship um, and unpacked for them you know, how they could do that and didn't shame them or second-guess them. I thought it was very deftly and compassionately handled. That said, we don't want to break down the incest taboo. I think we can make exceptions for individual – circumstances and cases and we could turn a blind eye but we don't want to tear apart the incest taboo because that will make the family a less safe place than in many instances it already is for children. I support the family being this place, the immediate family where it's not a sexual free fire zone like the rest of the world and biology supports this too. The Westermark effect, W-E-S-T-E-R-M-A-R-C-K, if you want to Google it and look it up, is this uh, – it's called reverse sexual imprinting. People uh, who grow up in close proximity are not attracted. Something about our brains, something about our libidos, our biology just default rules those people out. Most of us, we – almost all of us, you just are not attracted to your siblings. Living in that kind of close proximity as children growing up erases – any ability to connect sexually with that other person. There is also something talked about which is genetic sexual attraction. When you bring people together who are closely biologically related, who are raised apart from one another, twins who are split up, children who are given up for adoption, this has happened and it is extremely traumatizing who then meet their biological parents later in life. There have been instances, cases where people then have a sexual relationship where this 
there is this attraction. You are pulled toward people that you are closely genetically related to. And if you grow up in close proximity, that erases any sort of sexual component, erases desire. If you bring people together who are closely related, who did not grow up in close proximity, there are cases, there are instances, this is a thing, where then that sexual desire not having been erased is acted upon. Ah, uh, it's crazy, right? Particularly for those of us who have siblings. It's hard to talk about this shit without the mental images plaguing you. When people talk about, oh, brothers should do it, I think, ew, ew, I have brothers and I'm glad for myself that the Westermark effect is strong within me. It should be strong within us all. And using kind of libertarianish logic to reason our way out of the incest taboo or tagging gay and lesbian people with uh, our movement for civil rights somehow undermining the case for the incest taboo is not fair. It is built into us biologically and I embrace and support it and I always will. And if two people in whom the Westermark effect is not strong are having an adult consensual sexual relationship that goobs me out, I do not think that they should be thrown into jail. I do not think that they should be persecuted. I do not think that they should be interfered with in any way. But I do not think that it should be celebrated. But I also don't think it's a danger. I don't think that for the vast and overwhelming majority of us to know that there are two brothers down the street who have a sexual relationship that creeps us all out because the Westermark effect is strong within us is going to destroy the Westermark effect in the rest of us. I don't think it's a threat. I think it's an anomaly. I think it's extremely rare and I don't think it's a threat. But for the safety of the kitties, I support and I will do my part to uphold the incest taboo. Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old bisexual woman. I've been married to my wonderful husband for five years, and in the last year, we started dating bisexual women in hopes of making a committed triad. Up until recently, only my close friends knew about my sexuality, but I decided that this year I want to come out publicly, due in part to listening to your show. I understand how important bisexual visibility is because I think if I had been more aware of bisexuality growing up, I would have figured out my sexuality a lot sooner. I came out to my sister a few months ago and she was very supportive. I decided to come out to my parents while we were all together for Christmas. I planned to just come out as bi first to give them some time to get used to that and then maybe at some point in the future, if we had a long-term relationship, I could tell them about that. I thought my parents would be supportive because I'd heard them express sympathy for gay people before, but I was very disappointed by their reaction. They seemed to think that bisexuality was not a real thing. They suggested that I was just doing this to be a martyr or that my therapist had somehow talked me into it. The real disaster occurred the next day when they were taking us to the airport to go home. They kept asking prodding questions about how I could know I was bisexual and jumped to the conclusion that I must be dating someone else. I finally told them the truth about us being poly and they had a meltdown. They said a lot of hurtful things about me and my husband. My dad said I seemed to get off on being weird based on my involvement in polyamory, atheism, and gaming. They were both convinced that I could not be getting any benefit out of the situation and that my husband was just using this for his own pleasure. My mom even said she wished my husband and I had never met. Immediately after the fight, I was convinced that I would never speak to them or see them again. We've exchanged a few uncomfortable rounds of emails, but they don't seem to get how deeply they've hurt me. They've said that they accept my sexuality now and that the things they said about my husband were just said in the heat of battle, but I'm not convinced that they could have changed their minds that quickly, and I think they're just saying what they think I want to hear out of desperation. 
the part that has me feeling conflicted is that while I don't want to make them suffer on purpose, I also don't feel like I have any affection for them either. I realize that I haven't felt comfortable being myself around them for the last 10 years, and the idea of not having them in my life is actually a relief. It just feels like there's no benefit in me continuing to have a relationship with them anymore. My question is, do I owe it to my parents to give them the chance to come around, or is it time to think of protecting me and my husband from further hurt by cutting them out of our lives? I think I would be doing the world a favor by trying to educate a couple more unenlightened people, but I just don't know if they can change to a point that I would ever feel comfortable around them again. If your parents make you sad, if having them in your life to the extent that they have been in your life over the last decade uh, makes your life less pleasant, makes you unhappy, uh, diminishes your quality of life, you have an absolute right as an adult to limit your contact with your parents. To hold against your parents endlessly this freak out in the car when you laid something on them that for many parents is going to be kind of a mind blower, uh, not just that you're bi, which they were already struggling with, but that you are poly and seeking uh, a third partner and a mom and a dad who made certain life choices and have held to certain beliefs all their lives, reacting negatively to that in the moment isn't pleasant. Uh, it, it obviously was very upsetting to you and your husband uh, to be maligned like that, particularly your husband, how very upsetting that must have been. But it isn't uncommon and nobody practically who's queer would have a relationship with their parents uh, in adulthood long after coming out if they forever fixated on or were continuously upset about the reaction in the moment that they got from their parents when they came out. The reaction I got from my mother when I told her when I first came out wasn't exactly positive. It wasn't a blow up in the car. It was more of a slow moving thing. But it was in the aggregate pretty negative. And when she came around, I took it. Take yes for an answer when your mom and dad come around. That they're emailing with you, that they're thinking about it is an indication that they're trying to wrap their heads around this new and big thing. The whole culture is trying to wrap its head around the new and big thing that is poly, right? So give your parents that opportunity. Give your parents the chance to prove to you that they can get there for you, right? Send them some books. Maintain some level of contact that you are comfortable with. I'm not ordering you to go home every weekend and hang out with mom and dad. Um, you are not their therapist. You are not charged with dragging them along the road to compassion and understanding and tolerance. It's not your job. But it is an effect that having a queer kid can have on parents. We've seen it so many times. We've seen parents just do the 180, go from hateful and rejecting and angry and vicious to loving and accepting and sometimes mortified about the shit that they said in their ignorance and panic and fear, right? Your parents could get there. They're not going to get there if there's no incentive. The incentive is some degree of contact with you. And as always with you know, gay relationships, parents have these fears when you come out, particularly when I came out 30 years ago. They had fears about what a gay relationship was like. And it took seeing you in a relationship. It took meeting your boyfriend at your insistence, at my insistence. It took meeting that person and seeing that he didn't have horns, that he wasn't the devil and spending time with me and my boyfriend and realizing that actually this person was good to and good for me, right? And that helped. They couldn't have gotten there before meeting the boyfriend, right? 
they got there after meeting the boyfriend, got better about gay relationships, saw that they were no different than the relationships that my siblings had with their opposite sex boyfriends and girlfriends. The key, I think, to unlocking your parents' panic about what polyamory is and what this girlfriend, uh, hypothetical at this point, she doesn't even exist, you guys are looking, might mean to you and for you and for your marriage and for your relationship is meeting that person someday. When you and your husband end up in that throuple, that polytriad that makes you happy and your parents meet that person and realize that that person is good to and good for you both, they may come around. But they can't come around if you don't give them that opportunity and they won't have that opportunity if you cut them out of your life entirely. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old straight male and I'm calling because I think I might like blowjobs too much. I, I love getting hit, pretty plain and simple. And, you know, it's what I look – when I look at porn, I would say about 90 percent of the time um, I'm looking at, you know, blowjob porn. And it's been a problem recently because there's been times when I've been having sex and I like lose interest and, and uh, go soft or, um, you know, I'm just distracted because all I'm thinking about is that I would rather be getting hit. You know, I do enjoy other types of sex as well, but um, it's very clear to me that oral sex, receiving oral sex is really what I prefer um, much more than penetrative vaginal intercourse. I thought about your death grip, losing the death grip technique, um, that like maybe if I wanted to get rid of this tendency of mine that like I could just deny myself blowjobs and blowjob porn and that maybe over time, you know, I would come to like vaginal penetrative intercourse more. Um, but maybe I should just find girls who really like to give head. I think it's also worth mentioning that I also really like to give head too. And, you know, I'm definitely down with reciprocating and, you know, I think that's really important. But uh, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't like them as much as I do and I'm wondering what you think. I fielded questions in the past from women who aren't so into vaginal intercourse but love oral. You could find one of those. Um, they're pretty sparse on the ground, right? They're rare just as you were rare. So what you're going to have to do is what people who are particularly sexually fixated on one act or one fetish object or one particular kind of sexual scenario do when they're having other kinds of sex, sex that doesn't involve their particular kinks. Somebody who's into latex wear or cat suits or boots or balloons or pies or clowns or whatever who's having non-boot, non-balloon, non-clown sex and can do it. They're running a tape in their head of all the hot balloon clown boot shit that turns them on. They're thinking – Whatever they need to think, whatever they want to think, whatever they enjoy thinking while they roll around and have other types of sex. I bet you can do that too. Those moments when you're having vaginal intercourse and you lose your erection because you would rather be having a blowjob, I would urge you to concentrate on the blowjobs that you have had and that you will have in the future and run those tapes in your head while you enjoy the vaginal intercourse. That is what other people who are particularly sexually fixated on a one particular act do in order to enjoy other acts and you can do that too while also looking around as you date for a girl who all things being equal would most of the time rather give a blowjob or have her pussy eaten or 69 than anything else. There are women out there for whom oral is their favorite fucking thing. So don't be ashamed of it. Be honest about it. Be open about it but also because – 
Most people are going to want oral. Even people who prefer oral most of the time or like oral mostly will want other kinds of sex. In addition, train yourself to be able to have that kind of other sex by playing the porn loops in your head that you need to play to perform. Hi, Ben. I'm calling with a comment about episode 380 in your interview with Masha Gessen. Hearing about the horrible Russian laws and orchestrated attacks against gays, I think we should call these government-led campaigns just what they are, pogroms. Like the terrible campaigns against Jews led by the Russian government and religious institutions over the centuries in which Jews were physically attacked, brutalized, and murdered, now the Russian government is organizing and condoning attacks on gay people and their families. I think use of the word pogrom helps to identify these attacks as the mean, bigoted, and disgusting actions that they are. This calls in regards to episode 380 to the gentleman who wasn't sure if he should break up with his uh, long-term girlfriend that had put together for a year or not. Yes, he should absolutely break up with her. I've been in those shoes. I dated a girl for seven years from when I was 18 to 24. And I ended up breaking up with her because for a long time, I didn't have feelings for her. And I wanted to sleep with other girls and all of that. It's the best thing for both of them. Uh, it's been a few years now, and she's been in another relationship. We've kept in touch on Facebook, and she's happier. I'm happier. I'm single now, but it's the best thing for me. It's the best thing for her. Hi, Dan Savage in the Tech Study at Risk Youth. This is just a response to the, uh, the caller that had been with his girlfriend since um, he was 17 and didn't know how to end it. Um, there's a quote, and I can't take credit for this, by Elizabeth Gilbert, but um, she's in the car with her, um, her father, and he's talking about ending a relationship and says, it's better to make a cut than a tear. This always kind of spoke to me, and I hope it spoke to him as well. And we're going to leave it there. The Hump Tour. Hump, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival could be coming to your town for tickets and availability and to find out if we're coming to your town in addition to San Francisco, New York, Dallas, Long Beach, Madison, Wisconsin. Go to www.humptour.com. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Hannah Rosen on Twitter at H-A-N-N-A-R-O-S-I-N at Hannah Rosen on Twitter. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 